From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, my guest today, Emily Hamilton, is a return guest on The Weeds. Uh, she is from the Mercatus Center, a housing policy and, and sort of urbanism expert there. Um, she has, you know, a, a lot of housing dialogue that I participate in sort of happens from inside uh, the progressive zone. Emily comes more from the other side of the aisle, from a, a free market think tank, a libertarian organization. Um, so she's able to give a somewhat different perspective uh, on, on some of these events, what kinds of political coalitions are possible, and also look on what kinds of land use reforms are happening in red states, including and we eventually get to a really interesting uh, look at some policy changes in Arizona. I also apologize. I, I, I say some perhaps disparaging things about the uh, nature and history of, of the city of Phoenix. Uh, but I, I love and respect Phoenix, Houston, and all my Sunbelt City friends out there. So, you know, give it a listen. Uh, keep an open mind. I, I think there's a lot of interesting updates here. <music> Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Emily Hamilton, is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, which is part of George Mason University in some way I barely understand. Uh, a veteran of The Weeds, uh, but back we have heard from the Facebook group people wanted more housing on The Weeds. I sometimes worry that we have too much housing, but I'm glad to hear the opposite because housing is so key to everything. Um, so really glad to have you back, Emily. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's great to be back. Um, so, you know, we were sort of chatting before the show, and one thing that has kind of gotten on the uh, the agenda um, since we last talked is the idea that the federal government should try to do something to incentivize increased housing supply. Um, a number of Democratic presidential candidates floated ideas along these lines. Biden had one. One of his plans, infrastructure plan, I think, had an idea along these lines. I know it's something that uh, Pete Buttigieg is attuned to, at least conceptually. And I, I mean, I wonder, I mean, I know this is something that that you've looked at it, it it feels tricky to me, like conceptually, given the the distance of the federal government from land use. Yes, certainly. The federal government is inherently limited in how much it can affect local land use regulatory decisions because those jurisdictions that are typically the most exclusionary suburbs are also generally very high income 
jurisdictions with their own healthy tax bases. So the federal government's tool to encourage zoning reform is offering grants or potentially taking away grants from localities that have exclusionary zoning policies. But that's going to be, unfortunately, least effective in the jurisdictions where it's needed most. And so that's like a a lot of members of Congress seem to have it's like they heard housing was a problem. So they asked someone like, what's up with housing? And they thought, oh, well, HUD gives grants. So they came up because HUD does housing. So they they looked at the community development block grant program. Um, and, and there's a few different bills that sort of tackle this in different ways. But those grants like mostly go to low income cities, which is not where zoning changes would be like the most valuable. Right. Uh, there are plenty of exclusionary jurisdictions that do receive community development block grants, sometimes perversely because they have an old housing stock because they <laughs> don't allow new housing to be built. So they qualify for those CDBG grants based on, based on their supposedly inferior housing stock. But it's, it's certainly the case that community development block grants are not ideally targeted to encourage zoning reform. And some localities that do land use and permitting aren't eligible for community development block grants directly. They might get them through their state or county. So really to create a well-targeted grant program, the federal government would need to come up with something new that's available to all jurisdictions that do land use planning and permitting and no other jurisdictions. Right. And right. So, I mean, this is like, I don't know, you know, like Bethesda and Chevy, like, I don't know, like they don't, they don't need HUD's money. Right. I mean, like, even if they do get it in some sense, right. I mean, if this is important to you as a community, like you're happy to turn down some amount of funds, right? Like there's, you know, there's just like only so far these carrots can get you if you're talking about wealthy areas. Right, exactly. So is there like, is there a more promising approach that that you've seen out there? Well, the Biden administration fact sheet on the American Jobs Plan proposes a new grant program, um, which I think is a a good idea, um, given that there isn't anything currently on the books that's targeted to the right localities. So I think that's a very promising step that it's going to be something, something new. And additionally, they seem to be focusing on flexible grants to localities, which is one thing that the community development block grant does well from the perspective of encouraging zoning reform is these grants can be spent on a wide range of local political priorities, uh, which makes them very attractive to mayors and, and city council people who really have the authority to make the changes that they're looking for. Because then it's like, yeah, it's like whatever it is you you like happen to want, right? Which is a good way to motivate politicians whose yeah. <laughs> desires can be obscure at times. Um, but, you know, I mean, but but that's good, right? I mean, it means you, if, if you sort of make the changes, you win the grant, you get something very nice, very helpful to you. This is not like a super detailed idea though, right? I mean, they, they kind of put it down. I mean, I, I, I was glad about this because I, I think I suggested this to the Obama administration at one point, and 
their economists were like, ah, that's never going to happen. So now, you know, it's going somewhere. We'll probably die in Congress. Um, It seems like the details would matter a lot, right? I mean, it's easy. It's like easy for me to say on a podcast, like you should get the grant if you improve your land use. But um, like, what would that mean in practice? Yeah, the details really matter. The fact sheet from the White House is very vague, uh, which does make sense because ultimately it would have to be written by Congress. But there have been various proposals from Congress that I would rank in order of effectiveness from rewarding localities for creating plans to make housing construction easier and improve housing affordability over time as the least effective because basically you're giving them a grant for writing a a nice report Uh on what they hope to do better. Whose plan is that? Uh, well, that uh, was the ultimate outcome of the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule mm. uh, under the Obama administration was that these localities, to show that they have plans to affirmatively further I fair see. housing in order to keep receiving their community development block grants. We, we actually have like a lot of experience out of California of trying to tell towns that they need to have plans like we so like we we know pretty well that 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 does not work right right and it it depends on state law whether or not these plans have any teeth at all but in many states doing something like updating a locality's comprehensive plan is completely toothless and mm-hmm. doesn't mean that that zoning or housing permitting processes have to change at all. In some states, these comp plans are a little bit more binding, um, but it's certainly more directly effective to reward actual zoning changes on the books, which would, I would rank as the, the second most effective. All right, we're moving up. Yeah. <laughs> so if you go from, for example, in your primary residential zone from single family zoning to allowing single family zoning plus accessory dwelling units, that's at least one concrete step. But we see across the country that there are tons of accessory dwelling unit ordinances that are not actually resulting in accessory dwelling units getting built Uh-oh. because of of all the hoops that homeowners may have to jump through in order to get that accessory dwelling unit built or rules like owner occupancy requirements that make it really difficult to finance those um, those additional units. So I would say the best thing that the federal government can reward for localities is actually producing more housing at lower price points. And Mm -hmm. that's how we'll know that localities are doing a good job of making it easier to build more and lower cost housing over time. Right. So it's like, say, look, show me the units and you can get them however you want I mean, which makes sense. I mean, I, you know, I was working on a post about um, parking rules in, in, in my neighborhood. And, you know, I, I was writing like it was very difficult to explain because it was really like the intersection of the parking rules and the lot occupancy rules that was like creating the, the difficulty. It wasn't that either one of them was so particularly stringent, um, but it's like both together has created this like very odd situation where you have um, – and it's all over DC. You have um, garage doors with no roofs. 
because if you put the roof on it, you would be using up your square footage, but you can't use it for anything other than parking. So it's just like, you know, like it's it's this goofy thing. And the question would be, you know, if you tell cities, look, like we want to see more building, you know, they they could look at it and come up with some rules to change that they think would unlock that. Whereas if you tell them, oh, well, we want to see you allow accessory dwelling units, but you don't want it, you don't actually want the ADUs. You can pass a law that says, okay, everybody can build an ADU now, but you have to pay a $5,000 fee and you have to live in the thing and there have to be two extra parking spaces and blah, 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 blah. And then none actually get built. Yes, exactly. And we've seen that in California where it's taken many, many state laws over a long period of time to actually get it to the point where um, building accessory dwelling units is becoming widespread at the local level up, interestingly, only really in some localities, because with each new state law, local policymakers can come back with new ways to make it harder to build ADUs if they don't want to uphold the intent of the state law. I, I mean, that's an interesting story, right? Because it's like California passed like one ADU law and nothing happened. And then they did a second, a third. And it's like now there are ADUs like actually being built, not everywhere, but in but in many towns. And it, it shows the value of, um. I mean, I don't know, like politics, right? Like there is a majority in the state legislature that wants to get cities to build more ADUs. And so like they keep passing new laws on it and and that's what's getting results. Right. So yeah, I mean so the federal government can't if you ask for like a one-time change, it's probably not going to work. What you need is um well either like persistent political pressure. Or I guess this is why you're saying, right? If you if you do an, if you put a numerical target on the books, then that will have sort of binding force over time. Yes, hopefully so. And it's important to come up with a numerical target that takes into consideration that localities have very different housing markets across the country. So my colleagues and I have come up with a formula that we think would do a good job of that by rewarding localities in high demand regions, mostly for permitting more housing construction and rewarding localities in low-demand regions, mostly for permitting new construction housing that's at a relatively low price point. So we don't want to see a Cleveland permitting only new McMansions. We want to see all localities across the country permitting relatively low-cost types of new housing. Okay, let's take a break, and then I want to dive into asking you, what, what is that? How, how does that work? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show... You might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Okay, so I mean that sounds that sounds good. I mean, I think I think I know generally speaking, high cost, that's like the Bay Area, low cost, that's, you know, a lot of Midwestern cities. How how do you sort of make that concept more more technical? Like how how do you think about these markets? Yeah, so what we propose is looking at HUD's measure of what they call small area fair market rents which is their their way of measuring how far HUD dollars go in a locality to identify high demand and low demand places. And we also propose weighting localities by their density because inherently it's going to be more expensive to add a high-rise apartment in Manhattan than to build some garden apartments in a Rust Belt city, for example. Um, so we don't want to see any sharp cutoffs between localities and we want to be comparing like with like in terms of rewarding localities that are doing a good job of making it easy to build new low cost housing based on their own conditions. And so, uh, so, so small market area for, uh, those who are not HUD junkies, it's like bigger than a town, but smaller than a metro area. Is that the, is that like the the I mean I'm I'm sure they have some way they come up with them but like what 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 should people have in mind like what what kinds of things are are small market areas small um geographic areas that are intended to be small enough to give voucher holders the resources that they need to find rental housing that their voucher can cover mm-hmm. based on where they live so, so you, you would look at them and you would say, okay, in this small market area, um, you have a responsibility, um, or an incentive, uh, to sort of permit more, more stuff. And when you say low cost, right, you're in the George Mason zone, but in the, in the progressive uh, space, uh, there's a concept of affordable housing, right? Which means, 
interestingly, you learn like doesn't mean housing that's cheap, but it means like housing that has like specific kinds of subsidies and, and regulatory entailments. Um, so wh- what what are you talking about in terms of trying to create housing that's not too expensive? So we're talking about market rate housing that is affordable. So mm-hmm. um, you might say lowercase a affordable <laughs> housing as opposed to subsidized what do you call housing. It? Inex- inexpensive housing. Exactly. Housing that people can comfortably afford with their household's budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really important you know i mean and it's i mean it's it's very tricky in these big blue cities where you have people who are tied up into these like nonprofit concepts and they'll talk about affordable housing um and of course i mean the housing situations facing like very poor people are a very serious issue but you know what's striking about really expensive markets is that like completely normal middle class people like struggle to afford housing, right? And there's just like something fundamentally unreasonable about the idea that you need like a subsidy process for, you know, like dual income couples that have normal jobs. But it's like really hard to get like a house that a family could live in in uh, San Francisco, you know, on, on like incomes that are not low. Certainly. And it's a problem that's gotten worse over time. The um, median rent relative to median incomes has gone up since the 1960s in spite of incredible material gains mm-hmm. in other areas of the economy over that time period. So uh, what what are you what would you be looking for then for like sort of big coastal expensive cities? Like what what kinds of of changes do you think would meet these targets? Well, there's been a lot of focus recently on reforming single family zoning, Mm -hmm. which I think is is certainly worthwhile and an important reform to permit something in between a duplex and a fourplex on lots where previously only a single family detached house would have been allowed. But uh, as you mentioned earlier, with the the parking requirements interacting with other rules, these reforms to single-family zoning really need to be paired with broad-based reforms that allow for larger structures to be built in most cases. So it's not just a matter of saying we're going to replace single-family zoning with fourplex zoning, but also we need to allow more lot coverage, fewer parking spots per unit, smaller setbacks, and higher height requirements to make it feasible to build a fourplex that can comfortably house more people than the single-family house uh, rather than just changing the, the number of units permitted alone. Yeah, so this is really important. So some places like um, Portland, right, had a big uh, sort of reform along these lines. And when I first heard that, being somebody who's lived in the urban Northeast my whole life, I think I didn't actually understand what they were proposing. Uh, But like they were not proposing any change, right, to like what kind of a building could be on the lot. They were saying, well, instead of a big house, 
for a single family, it could be like two smaller houses or maybe even three smaller houses, you know, which is meaningful. I mean, I know I've seen in um, like in Somerville in the Boston area, a lot of things that used to be small homes for three families have gone the opposite direction and, you know, been converted to, to big homes for for one family. But basically, like those kind of reforms, you know, duplex bills, triplex bills don't address like what can you what can you build there? That seems like it it's very limiting, ultimately. Like America is much richer than it was uh in the heyday of some of those small house types. And like people want to have, I don't know, big houses. <laughs> and they will and they would be able to they are able to afford big houses in the places where you're allowed to to build them. Yes, exactly. In in contrast to some of the reforms to single family zoning that don't allow a lot more square footage to be built uh, as a as a part of the reform, there's Houston's minimum lot size reform, mm-hmm. which reduced lot size requirements from five thousand square feet down to fourteen hundred square feet, making a lot of townhouse or detached townhouses they call them in Houston feasible to build. And each of those townhouses is often more than 2,000 square feet. So when you're talking about three townhouses replacing a single family house, um, you're often adding a lot of of built space in addition to more units. And, you know, and to to give give the devil his due here, I mean, I will say, um, (laughs) I find these Houston townhouse developments are quite ugly um, in, my, in my opinion I mean not not to slag on it but I mean like I I I do get it right that like p- part of the success of that reform I think is that they were not demanding like cutesy urbanism it was just like look if you want to build big houses that are close together like you you can do it and people do right because like there's trade-offs right like I don't think it, most of us like don't get to live out hundred percent of our housing consumption dreams, right? But this is an opportunity to have a house that's big. It's in a location you like. It's close to downtown. It's convenient. And in exchange, like you don't have a big yard. And it's kind of weird looking, uh, because they have little garages and stuff everywhere. But you know, it's like meeting people's actual needs rather than, I don't know, just like somebody's like toy model of what they think a neighborhood should look like. Um, I bite the bullet, but like, I also emphasize that like it did, it did go there like versus like Portland where I think people want to say like, oh, you know, well, we can make housing more affordable, but we don't need to change what anything looks like. Yeah. And and to be fair to Portland, there have been some reforms to, to massing and Mm -hmm. parking requirements that um, it remains to be seen how many units these reforms will actually make feasible, mm-hmm. but they have addressed some of the the important barriers to um, to that middle housing. Well, good for you, Portland. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I'm, and you know, California has a a parking bill that that passed the state senate, uh, which is good. I mean, I don't know how it again interacts with other things that would let would let you build. I, I think it's a little underappreciated. You know, a lot of people know the sort of legend of of Houston where there's no zoning. Um, but as you say, like they made a very substantive change uh to their land use rules and only in part of the city. And they have a lot of uh parking required, as as I understand it. And was also reading a long thing from somebody who said that if you um 
if you want more than, I think it was four units, uh, you have to go through some like commercial approval process, which is a different thing. I mean, to me, this is all not, not to criticize Houston exactly, but to underscore what you were saying that like you have to make actual creation of units the goal because there's like a million things you could do to create roadblocks to, to building new housing. And it varies from place to place, like what the roadblock is. Right, right. And and to that end, in recent years, there's been so much focus on reforming zoning in single family neighborhoods, whereas, say, a decade ago, there was a lot more focus on permitting transit oriented development, mm-hmm. meaning serious multifamily dense housing in small parts of localities that are well served by transit or close to job centers. And those reforms, in many cases, um, have proven to be able to produce a lot of units in the places where the reforms have been implemented because there's not this kind of tinkering in most cases of like, you can build exactly this this size of and shape of structure. Generally, when a, a real multifamily zone is um, having its regulations written, it's intended to facilitate real multifamily housing. It's it's amazing. I mean, I recommend to anyone who who loves land use to uh, visit Arlington County, Virginia, where you can you can like see zoning come alive in a way that I, I don't know any place else. And they really made it so that near the orange line of the metro, like you can build really big multifamily structures. And you can look at before and after photos. It's areas that used to be, um, you know, a lot of like weird strip mall stuff is now very high rise. Um, but it's a very narrow corridor, right? You go, you go to like two blocks and it's like, boom, capital S suburbs. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the missing middle is like really missing there, right? Like you can, you could totally tell <laughs> someone be like, well, okay. If you're like, 200 feet further away from the metro from this giant apartment building you know there there might be a market for something else here right and arlington's approach has a, and a, a similar approach in other localities in the dc region has helped make dc relatively affordable compared to other high income coastal regions where housing is much more expensive mm-hmm. but in arlington in particular they're kind of running out of sites in these small transit um, oriented um, development areas that they've designated. So there's going to be a need for reforms either to allow more of that large high-rise multifamily housing or something like missing middle housing in its single-family neighborhoods to continue seeing the level of construction that they've seen over the past decades. Right, right. And, you know, and I think we see that in D.C. proper, where there's been a lot of building on um, basically like empty, empty land, like whole vacant, whole neighborhoods have like sprung out of what used to be like, you know, three derelict warehouses and, you know, a parking lot. Um, But there's no construction in the sort of existing affluent single family areas. And we're we're running out of of greenfields. I mean, I feel like people who live in the D.C. area, because it is pretty expensive 
like don't necessarily recognize how how good we have it compared to uh, like Boston, where, you know, like they don't build anything even next to train stations or, you know, any anything at all. And it's like, well, we could we could get better or we could get worse depending on on what kind of choices we make in the future. So, OK, wait, is there any chance of uh, these kind of uh, reforms happening at, at, at the federal level, do you think? Or is this is this just kind of wishful thinking? Well, I don't have any great political insights, but I'd say it's promising that there are bipartisan bills on the Hill intended to incentivize local zoning reform. Hmm. And there have been several different proposals of, of ways to do this introduced over the past couple of years. So there's certainly increasing interest in this topic. Um, and I think that it's a place where there certainly should be um, Republican and Democratic agreement that this is a problem um, and that Congress has some tools available to it to try to make it better. So uh, what what are the bipartisan bills we're talking about? It's Todd, Todd Young has one. Is that right? Um, I'm not sure what else is out there. Uh, yeah, the um, the Build More Housing Near Transit Act, I believe, which uh, re- would require the federal government to consider local land use rules when they are making investments in transit in localities. So right now, the federal government doesn't even necessarily consider, mm-hmm. oh, you've only zoned for strip malls with huge parking lots all around them near this rail station. That's not going to be a good use of transit money. So it would um, require them to at least take zoning into consideration when allocating transit dollars. Ah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, this was the sort of tragedy of the LA Metro, where they spent billions of dollars on building a mass transit system and didn't change the zoning at all. Um, and so nobody, I mean, there's other problems with it. But I mean, like to a first approximation, right? It's like, who's going to ride a metro if everything is parking lots everywhere like there's no there's no i I mean i grew up in new york and people take the subway everywhere and the reason you would do it i mean i've transit enthusiasts sometimes like i think like get everything backwards but it's like there's nothing so great about taking mass transit someplace it's that when places are very dense it's like a huge pain in the ass to drive your car and park it and pay like billion dollars to a garage and stuff like that. And so transit is a like on the merits good solution to that problem. Uh but if the land use pattern doesn't support it, then you know, it's just not, right? It's like I've got a six-year-old. He, you know, he loves trains. Uh so good for him. But like that's not a basis for uh, you know, an infrastructure policy. Right, right. And he's probably often not taking trains when he needs to be to work on time. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes. He's he's like the world's greatest fan of the DC streetcar because, you know, it's it's free. And it just goes back and forth. <laughs> you know, what what do you need, right? Um so yeah, we should build more housing near transit. And I do I do think that the leadership at, at DOT is uh aware of this issue, although it remains a question as to how the grants will actually be done. Um, so here, let's let's take another break, and then um, I, I want to ask you some questions about Arizona. So I don't know anything about Arizona. I have been there. Uh, it was hot. Um, I took the light rail because you know I'm a glutton for punishment and curious about the world. Uh, but you were telling me that there is an interesting uh, land use reform that is happening there, uh, and I want you to tell us all about it. 
Sure. It's the Property Ownership and Fairness Act, also known as Prop 207, that was passed by ballot initiative in 2006. And it's a state law that requires localities to compensate property owners for new land use regulations that reduce their property value. So typically we think of this type of compensation coming from something like eminent domain, where a local government or whichever government is actually taking title to the landowner's property. But in the Arizona case, it applies to new regulations that reduce property value in addition to actual complete takings. And so this has made it uh, really change the incentives for local governments changing their land use regulations. Because in budgetary terms, in states other than Arizona, it's generally free to pass new land use regulations that reduce what property owners can build on their land. But now in Arizona, localities have to pay the, the cost of how those, those regulations might reduce property values. So for example, a, a new historic district that is going to prevent new development in, in the whole area that it applies to is oftentimes going to be a pretty severe reduction in home values for the, the people who live in that district. And under Prop 207, the locality would have to compensate landowners for that cost. And in most cases, it's uh, resulted in localities deciding to abandon plans for downzonings once they realize what the cost of, of passing that downzoning would be. Okay, but this then gets us into the most divisive question in all of housing Twitter, which is, do downzonings make property values go up or does it make them go down? Uh, because I think if you talk to a lot of people and they'll say, oh, Matt, like all this stuff about exclusionary zoning and, you know, like that all sounds good. But look, like normal people want to protect the value of their investment. And so that's why they're not going to allow new construction in their neighborhood that, you know, both like general scarcity is good because it drives up prices and specifically, you know, multifamily housing or even just like new cars on the road are nuisances. And that's why we have all these exclusionary practices. Now, Arizona seems to have like a different mentality. There is like a whole different mental model we use. We talk about like oil wells, right? Like the oil companies want to be able to drill more wells. And if you make a rule that's like, no, you can't drill over there. Like they get mad at you. And so Arizona seems to have that mentality, right? That like the, that the regulation is costly. So if you um, compensate the homeowners, you'll get less regulation. Uh, I just feel like most of the conventional wisdom like has the, the sign on the variable going in the other direction. In an urban context, most of the examples I've seen in Arizona are about what we might call um, spot downzonings. So okay. downzoning, say there was there was one example where the city of Phoenix wanted to take away the right to redevelop a warehouse district as apartment buildings, which is going to be a clear reduction yeah. in land value for those um, those warehouse owners. Uh, so it would re require the city to pay them for that reduction in land value. The state Why law did people even want to do that? 
Like what, what, what are the politics of stopping people from redeveloping warehouses? Well, I think it's like you said, concerns about uh, traffic and parking mm. and just having more people in an area that yeah. they would prefer to keep less dense. Right. But I mean, how do you think that that plays out overall, though? I mean, I mean, you you see the the dissonance that I'm talking about here, though, right? Like we've been talking about affordability and, you know, like making making prices lower uh, by having sort of laxer land use rules. Yeah. So the the Arizona law does not require localities to take into consideration effects on adjacent property owners Ah. because they're not experiencing any regulatory takings. Um, We're talking about the warehouse owners here, not the people who live in, say, a single family neighborhood near the warehouses. So it, it doesn't, it's irrelevant in the Arizona case what the effect of this zoning change would be on the single family homeowners' property values. Now, if a locality proposed something like a locality wide down zoning, that would be a really interesting test to see how the courts are going to determine that that affects property values. Uh, but we haven't seen anything proposed like that. Oh, that's um, really interesting. Prop 207's been in effect. I see. And this 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 happened as a as a ballot initiative. Um some I don't know, people, warehouse owners, I guess. <laughs> we're we're mad about this. And, and for, I mean it's it's interesting to me. I mean because that's a, I, I, I mean this seems like the normal like free market way of thinking about these things that like regulations are costly to the regulated um, and we should, you know, make them go away. Uh, but it, but it seems very counter to, I mean, at least the the politics that I that I've seen most places. But I guess one difference here is that we're talking about blocking down zonings. And I guess histor- is there anything historic in Phoenix? Uh, well, historic is in the eye of the beholder. There are some <laughs> mid-century <enough>. houses. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Phoenix seems very new. But this would at least, would, would I guess, like block, right, the uh, sort of um, kudzu-like expansion of historic districts that takes over uh, a lot of places. And uh, how did it do at the, at the ballot? Do, do people love it? Well, it's it's popular enough to stay in place. It was passed as part of the wave of state laws that were adopted following the Kelo decision on eminent domain, where a lot of states set new limits on what eminent domain could be used for. Mm-hmm. But this Arizona law went further, covering not just complete takings as an eminent domain, but also what we call regulatory takings, which take away property rights, but not title to the land. <laughs> yeah, this is what I want because I'm I'm really bitter about the impact of the historic district on my ability to replace my windows. Um, <laughs> my number one personal issue yeah. is I want more energy efficient windows, um, and uh, I can't I can't have them. Um, have any other states considered something like this? I mean, you 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 follow you follow all the states I know better than I do. Oregon passed a state law um, that was quite similar. I believe around the same time as the Arizona law. But in the Oregon case, it applied not only to regulations that localities adopted after the state law 
became law, but also to any regulations that were adopted since the property owner owned their land. So that one really opened up the floodgates of property owners seeking compensation for all kinds of land use regulations that had been passed over the decades. And that one was overturned, again, by a voter (laughs) initiative process. Um, It was kind of chaos. So if I were talking to a state legislator, I'd recommend the Arizona approach of of rules going forward, not backward. Well, right, because, I mean, if you do it retroactively, then you just, like, you create a huge fiscal cause for the state government. Or for local governments. Local government, right. Um, But you don't actually generate, like, You're just like you're transferring the wealth back rather Mm -hmm. than like averting. Right. With the Arizona approach, like the idea, I I take it, is like actually not to generate fiscal transfers to property owners. It's to get the local governments to not adopt the regulations. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And if a local government wants to preserve a building, for example, they can pay to do so. But a whole giant neighborhood as a historic district is going to be very expensive. Right. I mean, because the the presumption, right, I mean, into economic theory domain, right, is that, yes, like people do genuinely place some value on the aesthetics of historic preservation. But it's also costly. And then if you make paying the cost explicit, people will say to themselves, okay, like that church from whenever, or that one building that some incredible architect did, like, yes, it is worth paying the cost to preserve that. Instead of just like, again, to just talk about myself, like we have some like hazy sense that we like people having old windows and we're not going to bother to calculate like what is the cost of imposing that what is the what is even the upside to us of doing it on so many houses on so many blocks in a city that is like not hurting for like old four houses with old ass windows and so yeah so it's like you you could spend the money but the thought is that in the absence of these kind of taking rules local governments over over, they, they regulate beyond how much they actually care about this stuff. Yeah. And the Arizona law makes an exception for health and safety regulations. Mm. So a locality could still, for example, pass land use regulations that limit polluting or, or something like that without having to compensate the landowner. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good one. That's a good one. We like it. We like to hear it. But so, so that whole kilo backlash, um, I mean, that was a while ago. I, I feel like the sort of gathering sentiment on, on the right is always, I mean, cause it's like the dance of polarization, but I feel like as I've started to hear progressives like talk more about how land use rules can be generating problems that I've started to see more commentary on the right you know, that's like in the opposite direction, right? Like Trump said uh, that Cory Booker was going to abolish the suburbs and, uh, you know, other kinds of of sentiments like that. So I'm I'm interested in like how to, you know, keep keep the flame. I mean, it, it seems weird to me that you it might be challenging to persuade Republicans that like regulations can be costly. It seems like they're their thing. Um, but I mean, this is not a universally beloved idea on the right. 
Certainly not. Uh, although it's also the case that it's not universally beloved on the left by any. Strategy. No, I mean not at all. It's just it's just that like we've we're like had all this like discourse on the left, right? And like trying to trying to get people in like very blue cities, like psyched up about making making change um to i mean i don't know it's like you got you got these these biden fact sheets i don't know that he's ever said the words that are in his fact sheet (laughs) but like somewhere in there we convinced somebody yeah there was a bill introduced in north carolina by a republican um state senator this year that uh, unfortunately didn't move very far this session but it was uh, similar to the missing middle bills that we've seen introduced in a lot of blue states that would uh, require localities to permit accessory dwelling units and small plexes in lieu of single family homes. It was a very wide, wide ranging bill. So there's certainly potential for bipartisan agreement among some Democrats and some Republicans on the need for regulatory reform. That's the dream, you know, getting out of uh, tedious polarization. Um, okay, that's really great. Um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to let you go. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Emily Hamilton, Mercatus Center uh, for your time. Thanks as always to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Eric Janakis. Uh, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Thanks, Matt.